This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, I'd like to uh, revisit a theme that we started last week when we were talking about responsibility. I think we were talking about Alec Baldwin and the uh, accidental shooting. We talked about drug cartels and avocados and all sorts of other things there, trying to figure out the degree of implication that we all have in different events, what our responsibilities are, and how we should analyze them. And so on a certain degree, there are ones that are you know, we, we didn't talk about. So, you know, if I watch the NFL and my complicit in head injuries, what does it mean if my Christmas lights were actually made by Chinese prisoners? Um, you know, there's a a whole series of, of entanglement that we find ourselves embedded in as we try to parse out how to live our lives based off of what we do and the impact that it has on other people. But then there's some much more serious, like very much in our face ones that pop up in the news. And so there's recent school shooting, Another one, and this one is interesting, and I'll get you to give us some details and your first thoughts on it, because the parents of the young man are now implicated and involved in this in an interesting way. And so it really plays on that. There's a much closer cause and effect here that we see, but this idea of a school shooter's parents being held responsible and their response to it, what strikes you as interesting about this one, and what are some of the details of that story? that can provide us a little bit of insight into whether we, how we consciously or subconsciously think about responsibility. You know, to my knowledge, Nathan, this is this, I mean, I could be wrong on this, but this seems to be a unique case where we're, we're focusing on charges brought against the parents. I can't remember a recent school shooting where that has been the case because four, four kids, four young teenagers were, were killed and others were injured. So four charges of involuntary manslaughter are being brought against the parents of Ethan Crumbly. And so in that, from a legal standpoint, this seems to be a pretty unique case as well. But then, of course, there are some other very disturbing details and also just just details that are all, they're heartbreaking and frankly, that are, that are just very frustrating to hear for instance that Ethan apparently was that morning he was he was in the principal's office for some and I mean some of the details here are cryptic for some disturbing things that he had said some disturbing drawings presumably morbid and threatening in nature and this was the day of the shooting so he may even have had he may even have had the gun on him in the office i mean this these are just extraordinary details but the point is here, there was there were valid concerns that were voiced, and he in the end he was because he didn't have any kind of a record, and presumably because he was fifteen years old, he is fifteen years old, 
he was sent back to class. And then what unfolded subsequently was, of course, very revealing and horrifying. So there's all kinds of, and so questions have also surfaced, are are some of the school, so is is it on the table for some of the administrators to be charged possibly, or, you know, will, will charges possibly be brought against school personnel? And that's not off the table apparently either. Mm. So there's, there's those factors. There's a, it's, it seems legally kind of unique in one on, on the one hand, but it also really hones in very tightly on the theme of who do we hold responsible for this as well. It's also, it's worth pointing out that Ethan and his parents are all pleading not guilty to the charges brought against them. And I believe Ethan Crumbly is being tried as an adult as well. And he is, he's, he's only 15 years old. The parents, of course, some of this, this gets dramatic and strange. And uh, again, it's an unfolding case, some more details, but yeah, they, for all, I mean, they fled and were hiding out in a warehouse. Their attorney maintains that they were, that they were really, it was just a matter of logistics that, and that was why they didn't show up for their arraignment. But I, that doesn't, that strains credibility and that's putting it charitably. So I think, yeah. Yeah. Can can I can I say just to follow up there on some of your comments? One of the things that uh, I don't know at all about we need we need some legal advice here is if he's being tried as an adult, does that in some ways nullify the responsibility of the parents? Uh, I don't I don't know what the connection is there, but it seems like if you're saying somebody is old enough to be tried as an adult that they are old enough to make their own decisions. That yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think what it does show us though, so. And, and uniquely this, this conversation will, or this story will continue because of all the unknowns, but what it shows us. And as I've said before, humans are meaning seeking creatures. We want to know why we want to know motives. Um, that's like the first thing that we want to know about when, why did he do it? And so there's this deep why factor that's embedded within humanity that we just, we can't rest until we figure it out. And it's super unsettling. You know, that's why the unsolved mystery shows are, you know, so popular and so riveting, right? Because we we want to see cause and effect. We want to make sense of the world around us. And so when you look at it from that perspective, we're meaning seeking. We want to know why. We want to make sense. We want to see cause and effect. Um, we're very modern in that sense of we, we want the dots to connect. We want a cohesive and a coherent story that uh, helps us make sense of the world that we live in. So when we put it in those terms, our our interest there makes sense. And maybe there is some precedent for this connection. I know in the past, other shootings that uh, firearm companies have been sued over the use of their weapons. And people say, well, you know, that kind of seems a bit of a stretch to say that the manufacturer can be responsible for the way that somebody uses the tool that they produce. Um, so two, yeah, two things there. One is our just human nature that wants to be able to figure this out. And then one is this deeply embedded desire to have somebody to blame when things go bad. Comment on that a second. Why do we have to have, we have to have a villain? Well, because I think that allows us in some way, it's, it's a kind of psychological consolation, I would imagine. And it, it gives you a kind of closure. Well, at least we, we, I think the hope is, that it will give a sense of closure. And I think because it at least now we have... Which is fine to seek. It is fine to seek that. 
And I'm keenly aware of the fact that I've never been on on the receiving end of something this horrendous when it and it's you know involving a loved one. And I do know from a lot of the the basically the literature on victims of horrendous crimes, shootings, and yes, unsolved mysteries. This is a point that comes up over and over again when when the the details are still murky, people simply they just let's I think especially a poignant example would be in the case of a missing person presumed dead but who has never been mm-hmm. discovered. People often talk about the the hell of that, the psychological torture and almost when some of those cases are finally solved and they do discover human remains, there's an odd sense of relief. And it's really not that odd when we when we think about it because the person now has now now they can finally put that ellipsis to rest, I think. And so yeah, it's mm-hmm. probably just part and parcel of the meaning seeking apparatus of being a person, of wanting to find to make sense of events that don't make sense. But of course there's a there's a deeper side where we really can't make sense of events like this. Not this side of eternity. I just don't think so. The fact that anybody would go missing and turn up gone and murdered in the first place, or or the notion that a 15-year-old would kill students and t- and and you know open fire in in a school and shed blood like that. So there's there are some we could we can get some quote reasons, right? you can find some motivating factors possibly you often don't but that's not that's only going to go so far does that make do you see what i'm getting at here you, I mean, you can you can make some sense of it but on a deeper level i don't i don't know that you you're never going to make full sense of this and so i think we're left so very conflicted there let me ask there. a question yeah. here yeah so let me so with that conflict let me change topic slightly but not so much is so we have this uneasiness when things can't be explained and a question so i'll bring in a question that my mom asked me a year or so ago there was a case where there was a child that drowned um super sad like all these stories really sad but then i think it was the state or i can't figure out remember what agency it was was then suing the parents for negligence and it just seemed like such a callous in one way thing to do. So the question my mom asked me is, do we still believe there's such a thing as an accident? Now, clearly in a school shooting, it's not an accident. Somebody did something. But then do we take this propensity to have to have an answer for everything and make it seem like actually there aren't accidents. Somebody is to blame. Somebody can be sued for every single death or every single bad thing that happens that we go into this hyperdrive of humanity of there must be a way that we're responsible for this. And so that, you know, we could look back at our earlier conversation saying, okay, you driving a car is responsible for ISIS, right? Um, that, you know, climate change is a wonderful way to implicate all of us in everything and fill in the blank. You can pick your other, um, causes and movements and injustices in society to find a way that, Somebody has to be responsible for this. And so I have some theories on that, but do you think we can overdo it 
Or uh, let me just ask you the question. Do you think we live in a society that is beyond embracing the idea of there just being an accident? I don't know. I mean, I think there are certainly we we the our legal system is set up to favor basically is 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 set up to look probably to diminish the role of accidents because that's the way I mean, yeah, go you go back to the I think this was referenced in the last one, you go back to the the classic McDonald's coffee example. So that's the way litigation often can work. I think we could we could also say that, that that is a that's clearly an abuse of a system that's there to function as a good kind of safety net. I mean, let's look at the salient factors right here in this case. So so far, it's a developing case. And I have a feeling many strange new details are going to emerge about the Crumbly family. It just seems that way already, the way it's unfolding. The fact that, that these two fled is it just looks very odd as well. But it's predicated on a gun that was that was bought for their son as a present and the the un, the quote unfettered access that Ethan had to that firearm, right? And so States have differing laws when it comes to to how you store your firearms. Some states do have a law that stipulates that you keep the, the firearm locked up, right? And I don't think that law is operative yet in Michigan. So right now, from what we know, most of the legal case, these four char- charges of involuntary manslaughter against Ethan Crumpley's parents are predicated on his access to that firearm in their house. So, so yeah. let me, okay. Yeah. But here's where this get here's where this gets strange though, Cameron is because in most States, and I bet Michigan is one of them. When you're 15, you can take a hunter safety education course and go sit in the woods and shoot large mammals by yourself with a gun totally legally. So, yep. I mean, I grew up in a place where a lot of people were doing that way before they were 15 years old. So yep. the whole, just because he has access to a gun thing, it, it seems like an overly narrow case because thousands of 15-year-olds were sitting in the woods, particularly in the last two weeks, all across North America with guns and assumed that they could use them responsibly uh, in some way. So just to put it in that bigger picture of sometimes I think yep. we see a, it, this is a very a very unique context for it, but it doesn't work to yeah. uh, set aside like, well, just because he was 15 and he had access to a gun, that answers everything. Eh, right. There's, there's got to be a little bit more to it. No. And as I've, as I've just stated it, that's, that's, that's a very flimsy from what I can, from my standpoint, kind of case right there. And it speaks to the broader point about the ways in which the law can sometimes work to abdicate personal responsibility but again, this is why we've we've kind of highlighted this case because it's fascinating from that standpoint too. Because you are dealing with a 15 year old, so but who's being tried, as you pointed out, as an adult. So does that work to nullify? Yeah, the the charges that are being brought against the parents. And again, I suspect also, and this is I'm going to recommend something to our listeners that we do all the time. We just don't know everything here. And I think there there are some very important details that have yet to emerge and men, men, some of which probably won't make it to the public's ears. So I think there are some other factors, probably some other strange, strange occurrences surrounding those parents and the family in general. But 
Yes. The, the, so here's a question, though, that I have, have, Nathan, and we can loop it back around to the responsibility. And this goes to something that's a longstanding refrain on thinking out loud as well. We talk a lot about there's nothing new under the sun. And at the deepest level, I think that's absolutely true. But what, what has me thinking here a little bit is the fact that we're dealing with a school shooting once again, something that's becoming a kind of a sick sort of, I don't want to call it a new normal, but it, it it's a regular occurrence here in the United States. And I, I would wonder, I would have to do some looking, we, we need to do some digging. Historically, I think it's worth it, but this does seem to be a new social phenomenon. I don't know, that's, it's, it's kind of, it sounds, it runs the risk of, of, sounding like I'm trivializing it to to use those kinds of terms, but it seems to be a new occurrence. I don't, I mean, if you peered into the 19, specifically, well, like the 1940s, the 1950s, were there, were there active shooters in schools? And I'm, again, I'm not sure, but it it certainly, I haven't heard about that. This seems to be a, a, it seems to be a a kind of new, hyper-modern pathology that's that's happening here and i don't know that we can we could we're going to be able to wrap our brains around this totally but i think it's worth introducing that thought here as we as we meditate on yet another occurrence like this well and there's a fairly narrow profile of who does this in schools as well um right i don't i can't remember any female school shooters and I mean, I'm sure they're out there. Somebody might, I don't remember. They're mostly young white guys who have some kind of deeply embedded right. odd. Yeah. Odd is maybe too generous of a word. Um, social situation or viewpoint on life. Um, so yeah, maybe it is, it is in that sense. Um, however, the, the ability for young people to do atrocious things globally right now and historically, I think is, uh, you know, we want to keep it in perspective of that, but yeah. So in, in the sense of, um, yeah, what that means for now, who can say? Yeah. I just, it, it's a strange kind of, I, to, to speculate just a little bit because this is thinking out loud and we're, we're, we're aiming just to basically guide in contemplation here a little bit. It does seem to me that it's, it's, there's a, there's a connection here between, between a certain kind of yeah, so Cameron, and- just to interrupt you there for a second, um, and to point out that there is, I was looking while you're speaking at charts here. So there is a, there is an increase in school shootings. I'm looking at you know, kind of a by decade chart here, um, which has pretty, pretty modest increases across the the years. So there, it's not certainly not a new thing, but the rise of it is is a new thing. Um, I wonder if we could position back though a little bit into the questions that I was talking about earlier and, and take these in a in a slightly different direction in the sense of is is our desire to be able to assign responsibility actually connected to a a deeper well actually let me put it this way is it is are there are there elements of um does this connect to the human need to worship in some way, is there a sense in which we're always looking for who who's behind this? And and 
what you see almost entirely in the news is you know bad stories, bad things that happen. But there's a lot of goodness that happens and a lot of beautiful things that happen in the world. And I wonder if we go to the same degree of a pursuit of causation on the things that turn out really well. So it would be, we're, we're looking, we're meaning-seeking creatures, we're looking for the, the why questions, we're looking for the cause and effect. And I wonder if that isn't some sort of a foundation of a re- religious pursuit that's embedded within us to want to put the pieces together of why things are the way that they are. And the news maybe yeah, kind of gives us a, a pessimistic version of that. But do we do the same thing with everything that is right and good and true and beautiful in the world as well. Are we looking for some sort of agency behind pleasure and delight and art? And I think we do. I would I would say that we do. And so let me give you this this definition or this question and see if this works for you. So when we when there's something that's something bad that happens, we almost universally gl- we're looking for who do we blame for this? When something really good happens and we start to ask, who do we blame for this? I think that's what it means to glorify and to honor. So when we're we're glorifying or honoring, we're blaming somebody. Now, blame has a totally negative connotation, so I, I recognize I'm using that in a bit tongue-in-cheek here. We're blaming somebody for the goodness that we see and observe in the world. Does that work to run that backwards in the other direction to say that our desire for assigning responsibility to things that we see is glory and worship and another worship is too strong. Is it, is it glorifying or honoring in one way and it's blaming and guilting in another direction? Is that partially the same mechanism? I'm, I'm just legitimately asking here because I haven't quite sorted it all out, but it seems to me that there is a, what, what happened? I guess the question I'm asking is if we take this uh, desire to know, in the, that we see evidently displayed in the news that's negative, and we run it backwards in the opposite direction, what do we end up with? Well, what we were talking about earlier when it comes to, it's one thing to solve a crime, so to speak, and it's one thing to assign a motive. It's quite another to try to make sense of what actually happened. And... I think most of us want to move well beyond the solving of the crime, putting the puzzle together and getting all the motives sorted out and want we want to find some kind of a deeper meaning there. And deeper meaning in this negative register when we're talking about serious crimes, well then what we're we're going to have to do, we have to assume some sort of moral norm, but we also have to assume some kind of purpose, some kind of telos, some kind of design for human life and human behavior. And so if you to go back to what you were saying earlier about good goodness and beauty and kind of life-giving qualities that we that we love that elicit some form of praise or worship from us. Again, I think we're part of what we're doing is we're celebrating something that that points to that gives a sense of fulfillment, a sense of well-being. So, but again, how are we establishing that apart from some kind of overall purpose or some kind of overall ideal picture of goodness, truth and beauty? 
And the same can work if we, yeah, I suppose if we go backwards and we reverse it, you can get that same sort of conviction in a darker register, but still the same kind of conviction that there's, there is an, there is a higher shared purpose and that responsibility undergirds that from, you know, from in every aspect. And so, so yeah, there's, yeah, go ahead. No, I think that's, I think that's, I'm, I'm still, well, wor- was, I'm working this out. Yeah, I was just going to say though, is we don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't have to know what that is for it to shape us and guide our behavior. Right. Um, you, you, you said a line there of there, there are many things that we don't fully understand. Um, well that's, yeah, that's a super o- oversimplification. I mean, the vast majority of us that know nothing of quantum physics, although it has actually, even the people who are experts in quantum physics probably have some big questions about quantum physics, but that, you know, has a tremendous bearing on our lives. When we look though into things about meaning and purpose and the foundation of morality and beauty and evil and brokenness and revelation, just the pursuit of knowledge and making sense of our world. I wonder if there are things though, that are true, that are, we recognize to be good, even though we don't fully understand them, that it requires annual repetition in order for us to build upon an increased knowledge of what's going on there. And so if I can make a little segue into more of a church calendar type of motif of having Advent as part of a yearly interest in what's going on in the world, the whole Christmas season of celebrating Christ coming the first time and looking forward to his second coming, that there's something going on there that none of us have fully grasped or can handle, although we do see some implication of causation flowing from it that we never fully understand and get our minds wrapped around. And so we, so in the, in the, in the criminal and in the bad, we try to wrap it up and, and, and complete it and come to a sense of like, Oh, all right, that makes sense. I can move on on the beauty side of it. In the other direction though, I think when we see mysterious glory and goodness and beauty, we can't grasp it. And so we never like wrap it up and be like, Oh, I got that figured out. Now I can move on. There's some sort of continual rumination and pondering that comes into play here as we're looking for a description of the causation of the goodness that we sense or of hope and joy and peace and love. These Advent themes that we see, we, we cycle is, I mean, you know, you see what I'm saying? Isn't it weird that we come back around to this for multiple weeks, every single year to try to figure this one out? Um, we're not actually, I don't think we actually are looking for a way to say, okay, I got that figured out. Now I can set that aside. We're, it's kind of like slicing the layers off of something. Like we feel like we're continuously leaning into it and exploring it in a deeper way. Uh, so is that too much of a shift to say that there might be some fundamental human longings, um, that are made uh, that there's a connection there or, or what am I, what am I talking about? Explain myself to me, Cameron. Well, um, let, I, I need you to get down on the, you know, get, get on your couch over there and let's, and I'd like to hear about your relationship <laughs> yeah. with your mom. Talk about my childhood. Yes. No, I mean, I think there is, I think there is a connection here and because what, I mean, Advent, of course, this season is, it's all about hope and an unflinching kind of hope in the face of the world's darkness. 
there are also the penitential aspects of Advent. You know, we, we await the coming of our Savior to judge the quick and the dead also. So there's cause for great expectations and celebration, but there's also cause for soul-searching and examining our hearts. And I think these these kinds of events that are just so destructive and leave so many casualties and do just irrevocable damage here, they are also very, very painful reminders of how fallen this world really is and how much we, how, how this is not our home. And I think that's the fact that we're, we're not home right now is a very essential theme of scripture throughout the whole Bible, of course, from the, the wanderings of the nation of, of Israel, the, the, the Babylonian exile, all the way through the New Testament with the birth of the church and Peter's famous and infamous words about us being resident aliens. And I think there's a German word, you know, I grew up in Austria, and if you're, so if you're taking notes, they speak German in Austria. Austrian is just German, by the way. But they, one of the words that doesn't have a great translation into English is the word unheimlich. And literally translated, that means unhomely. I suppose the closest you could get to it in English would be, but more uncanny or eerie. You know, Sigmund Freud uses the word unheimlich quite a bit too. But it, it communicates a kind of twilight zone feeling of, of just not about being deeply unsettled, a sense of being alienated and unheimlich, not at home. And that is part of the, if I can use a fancy philosophical term here, the basic quiddity the essence, the way it feels to be a Christian. To be in this world, it's unheimlich. And I think that that might be the dark side, by the way. We're getting really, really nerdy here. That might be the dark side of another <laughs> German word, of which C.S. Lewis famously appropriated, Sehnsucht, which Sehnsucht, of course, communicates a kind of longing, a kind of painful longing that is itself pleasurable. It's a kind of hurt that feels good. It's a longing for, for something more. You get a sense of, and it's it, it hurts you, but you want more of it because it reminds you of, it's sort of a, a reminder of your eternal appetite that you were made for more. Well, Unheimlichkeit is, is kind of the dark side of that, where you, it's, it's a sense of this world being alien and not your home. And when you feel that, that's that's you in touch. You're getting in touch with reality, and I think both of those Unheimlichkeit and Sehnsucht are united in the Advent season, and it's it's a fresh occasion for us to to examine our hearts and to lean into that experience. And this is where church will be will be a great aid to you, and the resources of the church. The hallmarks of the Christian faith can be a great help to you. And I was thinking as, as you were talking, Nathan, about, about some of these, these kind of convictions and how they are, in some ways, you can, you can hold them in your hands. Anybody can, a, a child can turn some of these truths over. Jesus, you know, came to, to this earth to show us how to live. And yet you can, they are inexhaustible. 
and you can never wrap your mind around them fully. I think of the way Luther looked at the the rule of faith, and for for Luther, Martin Luther, the rule of faith is the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and then the sacraments. And Luther would say, if you have those four in your life, you are a quote doctor of the Scriptures. And what's remarkable, what's remarkable about that, the rule of faith, you know, is is that it's a child can have those, and yet the greatest of minds can can never fully exhaust them. So you've got this. So that's why year after year, day after day, we need we need these in our lives. This has to be. I mean, we need we need the hymns. We need the Apostles' Creed. We need to hear these beautiful truths over and over again, because they need to do their work on shaping us, and because they are necessarily inexhaustible. And if we want to make sense of who we are, and our place in this world, and the world to come, we have to think, we have to cultivate an eternal perspective. There's no other way to do it. You have to have an eternal perspective. If you only if you limit your gaze to life under the sun, it is a recipe. If you really if your if your eyes are wide open, it's a recipe for real despair and fear and trembling and fear and loathing. It really is. And that's why I think we come can back I, to Can I yeah. consolidate some Yeah, please do. Can consolidate some some thoughts out of some of the things you said there. Um so one of those is that looking Christianly at a terrible thing that's happened, school shooting, fill in the blank in your neighborhood today. I mean, you'll see them is that you're making a distinction there that looking at it Christianly allows you to go beyond the language of saying that this is bad or inconvenient to saying this is wrong. So we are making a moral judgment that there's some standard of the oughtness of humanity that this is a violation of. So if you, if you sense that, that sense is there because there probably actually is a real standard that's being violated. Um, allow that to point you to reality, not to feel like reality is messed up. No, it's, it's, it's showing you the fullness of that. But then there, you know, so Saturday morning I was talking to somebody who was talking about this exact same issue. And, and they said, I don't know, I guess sometimes I just feel a little cynical about it all. Um, you know, about humanity basically. Um, and I said, well, I think there are certain categories, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, Cameron, where the cynic and the Christian are not that different in the direction of their of their initial gaze. It's, it's just that the Christian goes a step further. And so as a Christian, you can look at the brokenness of the world and be upset about it. That can concern you. You can be um, a bit ho-hum about the, the brokenness that you see around you. However, you can't stop there. And so I think the the cynic doesn't go far enough to take into account the entire picture of what's going on there. And so a season of Advent or just your daily worship or your weekly worship throughout the year shows you that there's another another side to the coin, that there's a bigger picture that this is all embedded in. And sure, there'll be people who say, I can't believe you know, in a God who would allow something like a school shooting to happen. Um, and it's bad, yes, but it's not zooming out to take, there's a, there's a huge yeah, but on the other side of that that there's a bigger story to this. So I think we can be realistic and we can say things are bad. And even maybe we can go further than the cynic and say, make a moral judgment and say, this is wrong. But we do that in the context of a bigger story and a bigger blame game where we say, yes, but this is part of a larger beauty. And we're 
in our worship seeking the source behind that bigger story and the larger beauty. That'll be hard for some people to swallow, that, that short little excursus there. But, there. but I want to point toward it because it's really there. And I can't come up with the German phrases for it, but I, I think essentially what Lewis is saying there and you're reminding us of, uh, is, and it's been a theological question of, can you, and it seems as a Christian you can, you can feel homesick for a place you've never been. That there's some sort of longing there. Uh, even without the German terms, I think you explained that well, we can get that. There's a longing for things to be ordered in a way or a sense of belonging that we haven't quite reached yet. And so we're, we're leaning into that and we're expecting it and we're anticipating, you know, like the hymn, come thou long expected Jesus, like that idea of we're looking forward to something coming, um, is right and it's good and it's true because it recognizes brokenness in our world. It recognizes beauty in our world and it recognizes there's a fullness that isn't quite yet that we rejoice for the clarity that comes into our world by the action that Christ has taken, is taking, and will take in our world. So, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to twist this into a, a too easily, you know, put icing on a terrible tasting cake here. But we want to phrase it in a way of seeing the bigger picture of what's going on, and being okay with that, and then worshiping as a result of it is a very unique thing. You're not going to see any news story about the ability to do that. That comes uniquely through the work of Christ in our world and us coming to realize who he is. I was listening to my grandfather pray the other morning, and he said, Lord, would you be with us as we deal with the reality of Christ? <laughs> Something about that line just stuck in my mind in an interesting way of, Lord, would you be with us? I mean, that kind of is the Emmanuel. We think of Christ coming to be with us. But would you would you help us deal with the reality of what it is that Christ means for the real world that we live in and that which is yet to come? And so that would be my prayer for us and for you who are listening and for you who are struggling and you who are pondering and you who are wondering uh, and you who are laughing and weeping and everything in between that the Lord would be with you as you deal with the reality of Christ. Yeah, I think I'll I think I'll leave it on that. Although Cameron and I decided that we wanted to try something a bit different, and for the next oh seven or so uh, podcast here through the Advent season, we thought we would uh, end each show by maybe reading the line of a hymn or maybe an entire hymn, and not offering any commentary on it, just letting it speak for itself, and uh, and by not singing it, uh, challenge you to think about the words as we go through this. So since I'm not going to say anything at the end, I'll just say this. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Here's the hymn, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords and human vesture, in the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way, as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day, that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness 
clears away. At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. Amen. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers, or make a donation, visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.